the fifth miracle in John's Gospel. We've thought about how the number seven in the Bible is significant. And there are seven signs in John's Gospel, seven sermons that uh, John records that Jesus preached, and there are seven I am sayings of Jesus. And I've pointed out to you multiple times that John does not call these miracles, but he deliberately calls them signs because they point to something beyond themselves. They were real miraculous events, and yet John is inviting us to look beyond the sign to the meaning and the Savior behind them. One one commentator, uh, actually more than one commentator, uh, talk about how John loves these double meanings. That these were actual miracles but they have ongoing significance for us today. They weren't just for the disciples 2,000 years ago, but they're for His disciples today, for you and me. They show us the compassion, the love of Jesus Christ. They show us His power. They reveal to us the kind of Savior that He is. But as we have seen, they also teach us much about ourselves. They highlight our weaknesses and our sin and our need for a Savior. And this passage in particular will help give us perspective on our earthly troubles. How do we view our earthly troubles in in light of what we read in the Word of God? So I want us to ask this morning, what, what does this sign, what does this miracle teach us? How does it expose our helplessness and our sin? How does it lead us to Jesus? How does it help us to rejoice in trials? Now this miracle, again, it immediately follows on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, which was the most public, uh, the, the biggest numerically miracle that Jesus did. And the central point of both of those miracles is that you and I have fundamental needs that we cannot meet in our own strength. And here, Jesus is presented as the one who is able to supply all of our needs. If we had to distill it down, we could say that this teaches us the same truth that Paul articulated in Philippians 4.19 when he said, God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Jesus Christ. So let's begin by thinking about how this really gives us an image and reminds us that we are people on a sea of trouble. Commentators throughout the history of the church have seen this event and and this miracle as a picture of the church in this world. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, the simple circumstances of the disciples being alone in, in the boat, on the sea, and in the darkness has been felt in every age to be an instructive emblem of the position of the church of Christ between his first and second comings. 
Like them, the church is on a sea of trouble and separate from its head, Jesus. Is that not an, an apt picture of the church in this world? We so often find ourselves on a sea of trouble and we're separate from the physical presence of our King and Head, Jesus Christ. And one of the striking features of, of this text is the, the lack of dialogue. There's not much dialogue here, but while the people don't say much, the symbols say much. Notice the only person who speaks is Jesus, and he just says, It is I, do not be afraid. But in the absence of dialogue, what we have here is well-established, symbol-drenched biblical imagery. In the Bible, storms, seas, darkness, all have rich symbolism behind them. And John's original readers would have been thinking in these terms. And, and I think we, we don't have to think very hard. Think about uh, storms in the Bible. Think about the worldwide flood. A tool of God's judgment. Storms were symbolic of the judgment of God. Think about the plague of hail in the book of Exodus that we are told was accompanied by a great storm. Again, a tool of God's judgment. In addition, we could say that stormy seas in the Bible, they are often a metaphor for evil pagan nations that oppose the people of God. One example, Isaiah 17, 12, we read, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. We sang it in Psalm 32. How, how did the, the psalmist talk about his trouble and his sin as sort of waves that might come up over him? We find similar language in, in Psalm 42 where the psalmist is in prison and he's mocked by unbelievers. They're saying, where, where is your God? And he describes this oppression and persecution in terms of a stormy sea. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And moreover, Darkness in the Bible, we know, has rich symbolism. And kids, you know this. I asked my kids this in, in family worship last night as we were going through this text. Uh, when you think of darkness, do you think of good or evil? Darkness throughout the Bible is representative of evil and sin. It's often associated with death and hell and separation from God. And, and John underlines this for us. In, in uh, verse 17, uh, our translations say it was now dark. The Greek says darkness had now come. So we can see why 
This event was seen as emblematic of our position in this world. We live in a fallen world where death and sin are still realities, where God's judgment looms over the wicked, where we face the opposition and hostility of wicked people, where we face the enemies of the world, our own flesh and the devil. In many ways, we indeed live on a sea of trouble. Now, we might wonder why the disciples ordained this hard trial for the disciples uh, right after that wonderful miracle of the feeding. It It was a high point, no doubt. And you might be asking the same question today. Why, why has the Lord placed me in the crosshairs of this trial or this trouble today? Well, the reason that Jesus did this was likely to stop any prosperity theology that might be looming in the minds of the disciples. Remember how the crowd reacted They wanted to make Jesus king by force. They said, this is the great prophet. They were thinking, here is the man that can solve all of our problems. He can provide us with endless food. He can defeat the the Romans. He can make our life happy and comfortable. And the disciples were likely thinking along those same lines. And so Jesus puts them in the crosshairs of this trial to show them that he didn't come to bring them their best life now. And in fact, the very next day in his Bread of Life sermon, he emphasizes that our best life is yet to come when he will raise us up at the last day. Jesus was guarding them and he's guarding us against what Martin Luther called a theology of glory. We need to have the theology of the cross. And it's also important for us to remember the context of these miracles. The context, we are told at the beginning of chapter 6, is the Passover feast. When everyone was focused on the events of the Exodus. And what is Jesus doing here? After after they left Egypt and they were on their way out being pursued, what were the, the, the two magnificent miracles that Jesus did? Or that the Lord did. Jesus did it, but the, the triune God did for them. He parted the sea and he gave them bread from heaven. He brought them miraculously through a sea and He gave them bread from heaven. And what has Jesus just done? He gave them bread from heaven and now He brings His disciples through a sea by a miraculous act. And so we're meant to be thinking in Exodus terms and in terms of Israel's time in the wilderness. Isn't it interesting? We, we find this often in the Psalms where we find these extreme examples where on the one hand, uh, life in this world is compared to a stormy sea. 
where we feel like we're drowning, and then on the other hand, it's a wilderness journey. It can be dry and barren. See, that wilderness journey is used in the New Testament to picture life in the fallen world. We are on a wilderness journey. We live in a land that's not our home. We long for a better country whose builder and maker is God. You see, this is meant to assure us that God will indeed bring us to our destination. But on this journey, we are guarded against that all too common belief that the Christian life means that Jesus is going to make our life easy and comfortable. Friends, do we realize that that is one of the most harmful and dangerous errors that are propagated by much of the Christian church today? Well, that Jesus promised that He's going to make your life great. He's going to solve all of your problems. He's going to make your life comfortable. Jesus didn't promise us that. Yes, there will be times of spiritual blessing, times of prosperity, both spiritually and materially. But yet we should also expect hard times. Storms of trial, storms of opposition. What we are being assured here is that God ordains each of those seasons in His perfect will, in His perfect time. His promise is that He will bring us through the wilderness, through the sea of trouble, to our final destination. And so that leads us now, secondly, to... Consider how this sign gives us a helpful perspective on our troubles. How, as believers, should we view our troubles and our trials, our tribulations in this world? Well, first we are reminded of the source. What what is the source of our trials? What was the source of the disciples' trial in this case? The source unequivocally was Christ Jesus. Jesus put them in the crosshairs of this trial. In the parallel accounts in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, we are told that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And the word that both of them used is a strong word that he, he forced or compelled them to get into the boat and go onto that stormy sea. Jesus put them on that stormy sea. And I think we need to pause and find the comfort that is there in that. To know that whatever trial or trouble or conflict we are experiencing today, there's that comforting truth. Jesus put me here. Not because He's angry with me. Not because He doesn't love me. Not because He has abandoned me. But He's put me here for my good and for His glory. Jesus tries those He loves. 
the prophet Jeremiah when he was persecuted by the wicked priest Pashur, that man who beat Jeremiah for proclaiming the word of God. Jeremiah responded to that crying out, O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and mind. J.C. Ryle said that affliction is the grindstone on which God is constantly sharpening the instruments which He uses most. Our troubles are the grindstone on which Jesus is constantly sharpening the instruments that He loves and uses the most. He's the source. But we also can see the purpose here. In our trials, Jesus means to do us good. James says that the testing of our faith is meant to produce perseverance, that we might be complete and lacking nothing. What do our trials do? They expose our weakness. They expose our sin. They expose our lack of faith. And they they humble us. They smash our pride. They drive us out of ourselves to Jesus Christ. See, Jesus uses our trials to crush our self-reliance and to drive us to rely upon Him. You see, this, this test here, it's really not unlike His previous test of Philip. You remember, there was you can sort of sense the panic that was developing when this crowd had came and there was no food and, and, and Jesus basically said, well, where are we going to buy food for all these people? And Philip panicked and it's clear that the power of Jesus did not occur to him. And the same thing happens here. It reveals their lack of faith, their, their foolish self-reliance. And Matthew and Mark underline this for us in their accounts of, of this miracle. Uh, Matthew tells us that when Jesus got into the boat, He said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Mark tells us that the disciples did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I was trying to explain to my kids why Sometimes we're hard on them. And I gave the illustration of a coach and many coaches that I had who pushed me and who yelled at me and who confronted me in areas in which I was weak and said, you have more potential than this. Athletes are put through resistance training Resistance training brings growth and it brings strength. And the same is true of our spiritual walk. We need that resistance training. I 
And it's true that Jesus, does he not, often tries us where we think we are the strongest. What was the profession of these disciples? The vast majority of them were fishermen and skilled sailors. Uh, Boating on the Sea of Galilee was old hat to these guys. They had likely done this hundreds if not thousands of times, and yet we put the gospel accounts together, and they likely were on the sea in this storm for eight or nine hours, and they went three or four miles. And Jesus does that to us. Areas where we may be naturally gifted, where we might naturally think we're strong, He might come and try us to show us that in every area of our life we are dependent upon Him. The source, Jesus, the, the purpose to build us up and strengthen us in our faith. But then what's the meaning Well, the simple meaning is that we are Christ's, that we belong to Him. He tries those that He loves. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. In other words, in the trials that, that we encounter, they can actually strengthen our assurance that we indeed belong to Christ. They can be a point of union with our Savior. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are are, are taken before the council and they're threatened not to preach the gospel anymore. And they go back and they report to the other believers and we find no hint of discouragement. There's great encouragement. You know, as people say in sports, they were like, pumped up that this had happened. They related it to Psalm 2. The nations raged against the Lord and against His Christ, and now they're raging against us, His servants. And they found encouragement in that. Assurance that they indeed were servants of that same King. In Philippians 3.10, Paul uses a phrase that I've found great comfort in Philippians 3.10. He talks about the partnership, the communion of His sufferings. And it reminds us that in our sufferings, that we should find great comfort. It should be a point of union with our Savior, the suffering servant. Well, that's perspective on our troubles. But finally, let's think about the promise and provision of Jesus in the midst of these troubles. I noted from the beginning how you know, this event is emblematic of the church in this world. And I want you to notice how we are told that Jesus was not yet with the disciples. But where was he? He was high up on a mountain. And the other gospel writers tell us what he was doing on that mountain. He was praying. 
want you to think about that imagery for a moment. The disciples are on a stormy sea. Christ isn't physically present with them, but He's high on a mountain and He's praying for them. It's a beautiful picture of the high priestly intercession of Jesus. We are in a world of sin and trouble and sorrow. We're on stormy seas. And Jesus is not yet physically present with us, but what's He doing? He prays for us, not from a mountain, but from heaven itself, from the very throne of God, living forever to make intercession for us, especially in our troubles and our trials. And even though He's not with us physically, He's given us His Holy Spirit and He is present with us by His Holy Spirit. But all of this is pointing us to the better deliverance that the better deliverer gives to us. There's that connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and this miracle and a connection found in the Passover. With that high point of of the Jewish year approaching, their minds would have been on the miraculous events surrounding the deliverance from Egypt. The meal that they would eat would would soon recall the miracles of passing through the Red Sea and the manna from heaven. And they made the connection. We see the next day, they said, well, Moses gave our fathers bread and Jesus corrects them and says, no, my Father gave them that bread. And in His bread of life sermon, Jesus is pointing to Himself as the better deliverer, the one who delivers us from sin and death and hell, from the storm of God's judgment. Friends, it reminds us that what we need most What we need most, what what you need most today is not that the trial that you are in ends immediately. What you need most is the presence of the better deliverer. The one who can provide more than you can think or ask. Remember all that symbolism. Storms, seas, darkness, God's judgment, the raging of the nations. How is Jesus the better deliverer? How does He bring us through those things? By submitting Himself to God's judgment. By enduring in our place the raging of the nations. By standing in our place. It's striking that throughout the history of the church, Psalm 42 has been attributed to Christ's atoning work. Can you hear Christ as he was submitting himself to the wrath of the Father? 
for our sins as He was enduring the raging of the nations, those who mocked Him and spat on Him. Can you hear Him saying, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. One writer put it this way, when on the cross Jesus was swallowed up by the waters and the storm of death. He was not overwhelmed by them, but could rise above them in triumph of His resurrection. He is the great Deliverer. And you notice how it's underlined how when Jesus stepped into the boat, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Friends, I think there's a question for us in this. You see, just as these ancient Jews had a misplaced trust in the man Moses, I think it should lead us to ask, where is our trust today? Where is your trust this morning? Is it misplaced in something or someone other than Jesus Christ? We're so prone to take our eyes off of Jesus and look to the things of this world, to look to other people, to look to our own strength. When we need to be looking to Jesus. Friends, we will be tossed in this world of trouble, but the great Deliverer, He's gone up not to a mountain, but into heaven itself to intercede for you, to pray for you, to minister to you in an intimate and unique way. And while we are without His physical presence for a while, He's present with us now by His Spirit. And one day when He returns, we will be with Him and see Him as He is. There's a beautiful image in the book of Revelation of the Sea of Glass. It's the opposite of the stormy sea. And it assures us that one day the sea will be calmed for good. We will be with our Savior free of sin, free of trouble, and simply free to worship Him forever. You'll notice I, I have at the bottom of your outline some excerpts from Psalm 107. And again, it's amazing how this parallels John chapter 6, beginning of Psalm 107. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. We, that's John 1, or John 6, 1 to 15, where Jesus fed them and they were all ate until they were satisfied. But then. Notice verses 25 to 30. He thought about how Jesus, Jesus put them in the crosshairs. Listen to what Psalm 107 says. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. 
They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. That describes the disciples on that sea. And how often does it describe us? We're just at our wits' end. But then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And He brought them to their desired haven. Friends, whatever trial you're in today, Jesus will bring you through it. He will use it for His good, for our good and for His glory. And we are assured ultimately that He will bring us to that desired haven of heaven itself. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your promises to us. We thank You for Christ, our Savior. The One who will never leave us or forsake us. The One who uses even the worst things that can happen to us for our good, for His glory. Lord, we pray that You might cause us to look to Jesus the one who went through that stormy sea of your judgment on our behalf, the one who assured us that we will never be lost. Lord, give us that proper perspective on our trials that we might have joy in the midst of them, that we might trust, Lord, that you will see us through, that you will be with us. Or forgive us for trusting in our own strength, for trusting in the things of this world, and Lord, cause us to turn to Jesus, the great Deliverer. And may it be for His glory, we ask in His great name. Amen.